0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Last month, I recorded an interview with David Downey about the birth of French cuisine and the French love affair with food. But as we all know, it's not only the French who fall in love with the cuisine. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And, yes... We all love French food, don't we? Well, Americans certainly are known for loving French food. In fact, JFK, in his 1961 um, state visit to France, and I think it was two or in front of or four, um, Charles de Gaulle at that time, he said, every man has two countries, France and their own. Well, that might be exaggeration a little bit. But at that time, certainly it was true because following World War II, and well actually long before that, but particularly after World War II in that boom period for France, Paris in particular became the world's most stylish tourist destination and the capital of fine dining. Americans were smitten. And my guest today is the author Justin Spring, who's written a new book called The Gourmand's Way, Six Americans in Paris and the Birth of a New Gastronomy. He follows the lives of six American writers and adventurers who adopted Paris as their home for a while and tells how they transformed the way Americans talk and think about food and the way we eat. His name is Justin Spring. He's the author of two previous biographies, Fairfield Porter, A Life in Art, and Secret Historian, The Life and Times of Samuel Stewart, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Justin has also written widely on the visual arts and is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the Leon Levy Center for Biography. His new book, again, is called The Gourmand's Way, Six Americans in Paris and the Birth of a New Gastronomy. Welcome, Justin. Thanks, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. This book is truly one big love affair with French food or, and France and the culture and, and all.
4: Right? Absolutely. And it's about a period in American history when Americans went gagà for the French. Everything about the French, but particularly the food. It's just so seductive. Yeah.
3: So I mean, we, the period you're talking is is really specifically that post-war boom, the, the world post-World
4: War II. I decided to write about the period 1945 to 1975, something the French know as les Trente Glorieuses because it's also a fabulous period in French history when France is recovering from two devastating world wars, rebuilding its economy. Uh, with a lot of the help from the Americans and the Marshall Plan. And everybody is full of optimism and hope for the future.
3: Yeah. Well, these people that you've chosen, and we'll, we'll talk more about how you chose them, they are names that are well known to most all Americans. And certainly were many of my favorite. Yeah, for, tell for, tell for people our, excited
4: yeah. <laughs> about food and wine, they, <laughs> right. there would be known quantities, so, yes.
3: So tell our listeners who these people are that
4: you chose. Award. Sure. I begin with A.J. Liebling who was an amazing reporter for The New Yorker magazine covering war, politics, boxing, and cuisine. A very
3: sharp wit and critic of uh, long before it became popular to criticize Yeah, a brilliant the man,
4: really an incredibly brilliant man who also had a passion for eating and drinking well. Mm. Then there's Alice Toklas, who uh, after World War II had to recover not only from the war and its devastation, but also from the loss of her life partner, Gertrude Stein. After that, uh, Julia Child and her husband Paul, they're almost one entity, Mm. such lovebirds, um, who come to Paris and really um, uh, have the most uh, happy and exciting time discovering uh, French cuisine, just as it's coming back from not even being able to be served. Uh, to the French, uh, because of war st- wartime hardships. So, right. uh, as restaurants opened and began serving once again, there's an incredible excitement in the air. Not just among Americans who are eager to try French food, but among the French themselves who haven't been able to prepare their own French food for you know a lack
3: good, of, for lack of food.
4: <laughs> yeah, basically food a decade money. there yeah. was no there was no food or you it was on the black market and it cost so much you couldn't afford it.
3: Right. And then you also write...
4: I also talk about Richard Olney, who came to Paris to be an artist, a painter, and he was an intellectual, a very good friend of James Baldwin's, Um, and he, through basically living in France, became more and more excited about French food and especially French wine and the pairing of food and wine together. Um, He made France his home, and so rather than coming back to the USA, he wrote books that were published in the USA, but really maintained a kind of... uh, um, isolated and uh, quiet existence in the south of France for the later part of his life.
3: And, and became somewhat of a darling amongst food writers and, and food well, people. And he was very generous. He about was that guru on the hill. People. He was right. that
4: guru who would accept people into his world and show them the French way. He'd been there as the... Um, the sort of forerunner of people who wanted to learn about French food and wine uh, in a very intensive way. And um, I
3: still, I still turn to his book
4: every uh, so often. Simple, you know, French, the food, simple French food fabulous. is fabulous. Yeah. great reading, not just great yeah, recipes.
3: Exactly. And let me see, we also, There's also have Alexis Lachine, Alexis Lachine, an
4: incredible uh, uh, sort of uh, showman and businessman who sold French wine to the Americans at a moment in history when they didn't even know what wine was, uh, and then developed an appetite for that wine and for French cuisine and for French culture that, um, that turned into a business empire for him. He was a, um, a businessman and a moneymaker. I think a big part of gastronomy is fueled by the desire of entrepreneurs to make a living, and make a killing, in some instances. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about gastronomy, it's not just people who write passionately or reverentially about food, or people who write cookbooks, or people who give cooking instruction, or people who run restaurants. It's also uh, the businessmen out there who are driving uh, the sales of specialty foods uh, or uh, beverages. Absolutely. And, and you know, of course,
3: for the French, wine is such a huge part of it. I mean, it's,
4: and the American way is a businessman's way. Yeah. So uh, so th- this, this <laughs> This um, uh, complicated exchange between the French and the Americans had to be facilitated by business. And last but not least, you included... M.F.K. Fisher, who is an incredible fabulist and storyteller about great food and wine experiences, taking many instances from her own life and drawing upon her emotional ups and downs as uh, a lover. And and, and,
3: uh, as with Richard, there are people who kind of straddled two different, I mean, both in the arts world, but two worlds of not knowing where, if you look at them, you're not sure where their allegiance really lies. I mean, Richard was an artist. Richard was a a painter. painter.
4: And Fisher was a novelist and story writer who simply found uh, her own voice through narratives that very frequently included passionate descriptions of good food, right. good wine, good dining experiences and or painful dining experiences. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And and always from all yeah, as you say painful. Always from a little bit of the odd angle.
4: Oh, yeah. Know? She's always from an she odd is angle. her own person, there's no doubt about it. But when I think of the challenge that a single woman faces dining alone in a restaurant, that for me sort of encapsulates what MFK Fisher was brilliant at. She yeah. could take a she could take that complicated equation. You know, why is a single woman dining alone? Uh, is she without a man? Is she being stood up by a man? Is there some sadness in her life that prevents her from having a man with her? Um, uh, does she have a right to be here in this restaurant? How does she going to, how is she going to interact with the waiter or the sommelier? Should she be drinking alone? You know, all of these things are very complicated. Ah, a woman yeah. has as much a right as a man to be in the, in the restaurant, but in her moment in time, This was all trailblazing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I I remember an essay of hers about having a meal on a train as well, Mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. And it was groundbreaking for me. I mean, it was really, you know.
4: Yeah, and I do a lot of dining alone. So, you know, I'm a solitary person and I spend a lot of time, you know, taking a lunch break on my own. And that is, it's an odd experience to be in a restaurant when everybody else is chatting with each other.
3: It definitely is. And often, you know, wandering around, it'll be, being alone will be the decision of, do I really want to sit down in here, or mm-hmm. do I just want to grab and go? You know. Well,
4: I think a lot of businesswomen now dine in their hotel rooms. They just don't mm. want to deal with that nonsense. You know. Mm. So, um, but others have actually made it a political statement to be as present in the restaurant as any man.
3: Now, about these. Um, six writers that you chose there are a lot of others who play large in the book there's and an enormous <laughs> secondary cast that's for a cast sure. right Absolutely. a cast of characters <laughs> and and they are and they were as big a name in their own right as as um, these that you chose many of them but um why just these how did you narrow it down to these six people
4: what i wanted to do was create a kind of cross-section of different kinds of experience so uh, the six people in the narrative, who, who's narr- whose narratives I follow, um, are, I think, they're, they're archetypes. You know, you have an old woman who has to reinvent herself after bereavement, Aristocles. That experience and that finding a voice and creating a brighterly presence and a kind of lasting legacy, that's an amazing thing for an older woman to do Mm -hmm. at a moment when she may be, you know, less... um, Not wanting to do anything. Exactly, or wanting simply to, you know, to be among friends. So, uh, you know, uh, and I think that uh, uh, food means different things to different people at various moments in their lives. So a single... Older wid- widowed woman, I guess you'd call uh, Telcos that, has a different uh, relationship with food and the way food can draw her back into the world than, say, a lovebird couple like Julia and Paul Child, yeah. whose he- eating was a sort of an expression of their love for one another and becomes very um, um, a kind of a uh, um, an experience between two people um,
3: and, and an excitement and venture and verve for life and and discovery.
4: Yeah, and I I really focused on that, I would call it a honeymoon period, when Paul and Julia are deeply in love with each other, and they're also falling in love together with French cuisine. Mm -hmm. Paul was a mentor to her, but at a certain point, she ceases to be a student and becomes the leader in the relationship. So I look at the the, the exchange of power in that relationship, and also the way in which it was actually more comfortable uh, uh, for Paul, uh, to cease taking the lead in the relationship and to become the supporting um, presence.
3: Yeah, and back to um, Alice B. Toklas. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, again, there's that, that you know dual identity. She was so involved in the art world through yeah. her partner, Gertrude Stein, yeah. that she's constantly surrounded by all these famous artists or artists who they helped make famous. You know, for a
4: little old lady, she had quite a salon. Unbelievable. And she had her dinner
3: parties were, were phenomenal and legendary. And
4: right. also her receptions, or she would just have people over for tea. And shortbread, she would make something, and that would make it a much more intimate experience. Oh. Um, yeah.
3: And uh, and I'm so I'm thinking now I'm looking at A.J. Liebling and and Alexis Lachine. I mean, these I can see these people kind of also helped you cover that span of time that you wanted to write about.
4: Well, that's the thing. Various uh, moments in these lives are extremely important at critical moments in the history of France from 1944 to 1975. So Liebling is there when Paris is liberated, and his liberation of the Closerie des Lilas is a very exciting moment, very powerful for him because he'd gone there as a young man with a young woman that he was in love with. Um, then Alistoclus is living through the Reconstruction period when uh, she has to buy things on the black market and has no money. So that reflects what the Parisians were experiencing or the French mm-hmm. in that immediate porsport period. Then you see the beginning of this richness and um, uh, uh, allure of Paris through the uh, experiences of Paul and Julia Child, who were there from 48 to early 53. And then you see um, Richard Olney coming as a young art student in 53 and making the scene in the Left Bank with all of his artist and poet and uh, intellectual friends up through the early 1960s, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, uh what? How did you embark upon this <laughs> <laughs> this idea? Did it just you started writing about one thing and it, it morphed into another, or is this what you set out to do?
4: Uh, during the writing of my previous biography, Secret Historian, I had become very caught up. Uh, and
3: wait a minute, and he he figures largely in this book well, as Sam well. Sam Stewart yeah. is
4: definitely <laughs> a presence here too, a supporting <laughs> role, of course, but. Um, uh, Sam Stewart used to visit uh, Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas at Bellini in the chateau where they had lived during the summers, or from spring through fall, basically, um, all during the 1930s. And he loved that place. I fell in love with it, too, simply by reading about it, in part because of Alice Toklas's gardening, her passion for vegetable gardening and flower gardening and fruits. and um, And I thought, well, this would be a lovely couple to visit with because they're living... Elegantly, but also very close to the earth. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that I really like. Whenever I visited Italy, I love staying in a place that has a, kind of a potager uh, or where people are moving from the garden to the kitchen to the table. So um, so just to get back to that question about how I got to Paris in the post-war era, um, the excitement about uh, Alistoclus was there, there was also an excitement about uh, the left bank of Paris in the immediate post-war period because it's, an, it's a ferment of philosophical discussion, uh, uh, artistic revival, uh, a kind of rebirth of culture in Europe when so much of Europe has been decimated or destroyed right. by the war. Right. And Paris was intact. The Parisians had suffered, but the city was intact. And it became a kind of great stage for the revival of fashion. Look at uh, Christian Dior and his new look. The way in which all the world sort of turned to Paris at that moment and, and said, indeed. Show, us, show us beauty again. We need to get back to feeling good. It's mm. been a really long, hard decade. So uh, the uh, artistic and intellectual ferment of that area uh, excited me. And I thought for a while about writing about intellectuals who had been... Uh, moving over it to the left bank, in part because it was an alternative to Greenwich Village, and in part because it was an alternative to McCarthy America. Right. which aided, Well, that's,
3: that's what I, I you know. wanted to bring up, too. There was a, not only the food and the fashion and the style, but there was sort of a, particularly for Americans, a newfound sort of a sense of freedom. Going to Paris,
4: absolutely. Sexual freedom, right. intellectual freedom, musical uh, freedom, musical jazz. Exactly, and I mean, you, know. exactly. uh, and, um, I mean if you look at Simone de Beauvoir uh, writing on behalf of women during mm-hmm. that period. You know, this is, um, uh, and you have also fr- the holdover from the twenties and the thirties is a strong lesbian and gay presence on the left bank of Paris. Mm-hmm. This is where a lot of people went to be themselves at a time when basically you were punished for being yourself elsewhere.
3: Right. right. Very interesting time and, of course, a very interesting city. No, no question about
4: well, that. such a beautiful city. Yeah. Such a seductive city. And then you have something good to eat in the most beautiful place on the planet, and it becomes but a whole a other experience. But,
3: so, so did you start out wanting to write about and focusing on just particular characters, or did that... Say, so how am I going to tie this all together? No, here's
4: what happened. My partner and I moved to Paris in 2009 for the entire year. There were reasons. He's a businessman, and we had to do some things over there. And I was open to it because I'd never – I my partner is, has a U.K. citizenship. So basically I'd lived in the U.K., but it hadn't really been a good fit. I'd traveled all over Europe, and I loved it. But I thought, what if we made our base in Paris and traveled all over France and then also around Europe because it's a, it's a hub city. Mm-hmm. So we happened to find an apartment that had a parking space. We leased a car. And suddenly this great adventure began. Of, uh, <laughs> it had a parking space. <laughs> that, parking is tough that in Paris. Play yeah. play large, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at that point, I was, in, I was researching a lot of black experience, um, gay experience, uh, communist experience, uh, You know, uh, the blacklisted screenwriters, a number of them yeah. had moved to Paris. Uh, there was a whole world of writers and poets, uh, intellectuals, playwrights, who were living on the left bank. But what I saw was, more and more, uh, those live stories had to some large extent been told and that it had been told by people who specialized in telling that particular kind of story so I was thrown back on myself I didn't I'd, I feel like I'd written about gay experience enough with uh, Secret Historian Stuart yeah, yeah. I, and so uh, I, I I had my 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 curiosity was exhausted there uh, and I had to find something else that I really loved now for years I have been reading cookbooks in bed at night as a way of falling asleep <laughs> my partner thinks I'm insane
3: Yeah, that would just make me want to get up and eat <laughs> yeah
4: <laughs> but i I also I cook very regularly uh, I garden and I garden with the view to bringing the things that i 've gardened into the kitchen i 've been interested forever in garden design and the way in which um, fresh local, sustainable uh, produce can enhance a dining experience and make you feel better in your body. so all of these things are things that the French knew about. So part of our travel around was not just you know eating well and, uh, at the businessman's lunch in these Michelin restaurants where you can dine well for not too much money, but also looking at gardens, looking at homes, thinking about what home is, thinking about w- who feels at home in France, and how mm-hmm. can you as an American feel at home here? I didn't have the f- experience that Julia Child did of wanting to move to France. I've always felt like the French are, the French are quite different from me. I, I admire and respect them, and I, in many ways I'm just sort of astounded by um, the French character. Uh, And I'm certainly flummoxed by their brilliance with food and wine. Um, But I didn't think that I was going to become French. And I didn't see this experience of mine lasting more than a year. Um, I want to go back endlessly on vacations. Right. But I'm never going to be French. So... Mm. uh, so then I thought again, well, who are the people who have made me feel most at home in France? And the, those people were among the, the six people and other writers who had written so engagingly about what it is to go to Paris or go to France and have food and drink.
3: Interesting that it's all from another era, too. You know, totally. But
4: these authors are evergreen authors. Their books are yeah. constantly being republished. I mean, you look at some of the things that M.F.K. Fisher wrote. She wrote them in 38 and 39. Right. And they're still being picked up and read. That's an incredible run. Yeah. Um, but also Julia Child. I mean, nobody who talks to me about Paris in the 40s and 50s will let the conversation go by without wanting to talk a lot about Julia. Uh, and they think of her in a first-name first, um, first name basis. You mm-hmm. know, She kind of captured America's hearts. Uh, the people who are not so well-known, like uh, Richard Olney or Alexis Lachine, whose reputation has sort of diminished or subsided over the years, um... Uh, they were all very important to me because I needed guidance. I needed, and also, uh, they write differently about food and wine than actual cookbook writers. I mean, only is a cookbook writer, but he's also a belletrist, I think. He's a, he's a fine essayist. Mm-hmm. He has an incredible turn of phrase and incredible um, range of uh, knowledge and depth of knowledge on subjects apart from food and wine. Those inform his prose and make his sentences a delight.
3: Had you really been familiar with French food prior to your visit and long-term stay over there? I mean,
4: well, it's funny. You know, I grew up in Manhattan, so there was a, a, a kind of exposure to French food. Yeah. I mean, kids don't get taken to, Lutes, you know, or uh, uh, but or La Car- But the sensibility
3: Car- is, is well, there and evident. You
4: know, know that there's a fine things. meal out there if you can right. get your grandma to pop for it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but my experience of French food was a kind of, I wouldn't say down market, but a kind of everyday French food. Now, places that I would go on dates to were like La Fondue or La Bonne Soup, where uh, you know a soup or, or a fondue is on offer. It's not terribly expensive, but you have the experience of having a carafe of wine with your meal. Uh, the meal comes in three courses. Um, there's a whole different experience of sitting at the table than a place where you're sort of bustled in and bustled out after you have a burger, you know, right. or uh, right. uh, a sandwich. You know. It
3: is. It's, it's that, um, I don't know, experience of, of living every moment and living life and enjoying the moment. That moment,
4: and you're here at the table. Let's yeah. have an experience at this table. And it's not just about the food. But what you need is time. You need people to relax enough to enjoy that time. And you have to have a sense that time will wait for us to have this experience, and then we can get up and move on. Yeah. And that's not really a New York thing. You that's know. True. We're all well, moving so I mean, fast here.
3: And unfortunately, some of the the less uh, appealing American habits and traits have gone abroad. Oh, yeah. and And we have by the same token incorporated so much of the european model in our daily life and our and our eating too but
4: here in the usa there's uh, in the as far as restaurant experiences are concerned there is a strong profit motive uh, at the center of the transaction right. of being in a restaurant and that sense of being bustled in and out of having loud music playing in your ears the entire time that you're dining that sense of agitation <sighs> that's not something that is for me a good dining experience.
3: No, it's always for me. It's like find me a place where I can have a conversation. Yeah,
4: you know? I wish that, that there was a quiet restaurant league where people, <laughs> where you could pay extra for a quiet room and a, a table that you could sit at for as long as you like. I
3: think we could start one. You know, I think we have a lot of people sign up. <laughs> yeah, <out>.
4: listeners, please. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, well, I, I think that it's quite interesting that um, I mean things change. Everything gets modernized, and even in France, and that the French right now are you know sort of. Turnabout, turnabout is a fair play. We were talking before the show about how the French are loving everything Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yes, a The Brooklyn, right. yes, a very the Brooklyn popular experience. I reading. want the, you know the the hipster experience, and here we are in the center of it at Roberta's in Bushwick. I'm
4: it's in true. It's true, and it does seem they to me that there's more time and space out here in Brooklyn than there is in Manhattan. You know, we're yeah, sort I think of. You're right. yeah. Manhattan's the center of a vortex that spins very quickly, and it's tight in there. It's all that chasing the money, yeah. you know. And well, here there's more sunshine, and there are more people who have an afternoon to have a meal. So. Let's hear it for Brooklyn.
3: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about about the people who, how they in, how they manage to influence the way Americans think about food and eat. When we come back after the short break.
5: Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, the top quality supplier of grains, flours, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room.
1: Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry, and they make mills for us that are just wonderful.
5: Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool,
1: preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended.
5: After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world.
1: We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing.
5: To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
3: Hi, welcome back. I'm talking with Justin Spring and Justin's new book, The Gourmand's Way, Six Americans in Paris, and the Birth of a New Gastronomy. And Justin, when you say a birth of a new gastronomy, but you're writing about this period, this post-World War II
4: period, explain a little bit what you mean by that. I should clarify that it's American gastronomy that I'm talking about. Uh-huh. French gastronomy has been how, in place for uh, several centuries. So, well, that's
3: what that and that's what I mentioned about the show that I did with David Downey. He talked about, and we were going back, you know.
4: I heard that program. Yeah, oh, sure. Okay. Well, basically, gastronomy is not just recipe writing, and it's not celebrity chefs. Gastronomy is that whole constellation of writers who, or you know, public presences who engage on the subject of good food and wine, and how to enjoy it, and the importance of enjoying it. So um, uh, my thought was that up until uh, the end of World War II, there was a kind of upper class interest in dining well and of um, bringing friends to the table in a in a momentous way. After World War II, because of changes in the economy, the loss of uh, servants, and also the institution of income tax, which had happened you know a decade earlier, mm-hmm. rich people were not entertaining on a grand scale at home anymore. Instead the richest people were having their events, often at a place like the Waldorf Astoria, where the, how people were dining and what they were eating uh, was dictated by a French uh, maitre d' and uh, 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 director of food and beverage named Philippe of the Waldorf. Uh, but also, that the, the kind of dining that was going on among the upper classes was subject to public scrutiny. It was discussed in the papers. It was looked at and thought about. For the first time, and there became there became a kind of trickle down within society, in which eating and drinking well became a kind of um, uh, maybe a class marker, a sort of a a a way of distinguishing yourself, uh, a way of enjoying your newfound prosperity, uh, in a in a sensitive and um, thoughtful way that spoke that was more about just eating something expensive or going out someplace expensive. It was Mm -hmm. about the idea that food and the way that you um, uh, serve your meals and enjoy your dinner parties really mattered. So you see that growing all through the 50s and 60s. And America, after World War II, was the richest nation on the planet. We had enormous financial reserves, and Americans had been held back from travel to Europe uh, all during the 30s by the Depression and by the civil unrest in Europe, and then during World War II, of course, by the war. So reconstruction uh, completed. There was this moment at which eating and drinking well now became a subject of public fascination in the USA as it had never been before.
3: Definitely. More approachable, as I mentioned at the top of the show, even before this period that you write about. I mean, in the twenties, particularly, there was a lot of travel. To I mean, you know, a young person had to take the Grand Tour, just as a European. Yeah, person and Europe and Europe the person. effect
4: of those great novels about uh, expatriate experience mm-hmm. uh, uh, resonate throughout the nineteen thirties and build just at a moment which Europe shuts down. So it was as if uh, the pump had been primed, but then nobody was pumping the pump anymore because everything had to stop for the war to take place. Um, uh, There's also... um, uh, and excitement about uh, food and wine that begins in the USA during the 1930s but sort of slowed down by the the financial problems of the mm-hmm. Great Depression. You see Les Dames d'Escoffier begins in New York right, in, yes. in the early 30s, doesn't it?
3: No, and, it, be, uh, no it doesn't begin until the 70s. Oh, 70s. okay, yeah. yeah. The,
4: the, they're
3: quite there a few, was a, There's a group not Les Dames d'Escoffier, hmm. but there's a group of Lamy. L'Amis d'Escoffier.
4: And they happen to have their origin at the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. right? When Oscar uh, of the Waldorf, Oscar Turkey is there, but he's... Replaced at a certain point in the 30s by Philippe of 30. the Waldorf, who brings in this incredible, showy French uh, dining experience uh, and the series of balls and entertainments and um, basically um, uh, public spectacles that gets America really excited about French food and wine.
3: Well, and the writing that um, that people who were more involved in food and saying wanting to to know more about this French experience, because of course that was the elite experience. Well, but they but then again, as far as restaurants go. The f- They were the first restaurateurs. Yep. And and here in New York, the first restaurant, fine dining restaurant, was, of course, a French restaurant.
4: Also, the French have been known for luxury products, for high fashion, mm-hmm. for fine dining for hundreds of years. You know, since uh, Grimaud de la Reynière, as you That's were talking right. about the other day, <laughs> or, you know... Uh- last Ive as well so um, I think it's the cachet of things French that sells you know um, you know perfumes and gowns uh, but it also begins to sell meals and uh, um, venues for entertaining mm-hmm. um, so French becomes a, a sort of a synonym a synonym for um, 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 luxurious and sexy and intriguing and otherworldly um,
3: a lot of these people that you write about who went to Paris and uh, outside of Paris um, and fell in love with the food and started to learn more about it and write about it and, and sort of were the, were the um, ambassadors for or the emissaries that brought it back to America. Who were they reading? How were they how were they finding out about? I mean, aside from Julie Child, I think we know everything we need to know. About <laughs> <laughs> but but we always love reading about it. Um, who were they? How were they finding out? Who were they reading? Other than just eating?
4: Well, it's interesting. Even when Julia Child first arrived in Paris, she was drawing on experiences that Paul Child had had in Paris in the twenties, and he had had he had bought restaurant guides when he was there. He didn't have that much money when he was a young man, but he followed restaurants and food with interest. Um, you have similar experiences with M.F.K. Fisher. She's the wife of a young would-be academic, uh, and she travels through Paris and then goes to Dijon and with her husband suddenly finds herself as her husband's learning French in order to do his doctorate, that she's sitting in one of the most amazing food and wine capitals in the world. Dijon is small and provincial, but it's right at the top of the Cote d'Or, and it has some of the greatest restaurants in France. In it. so um, there's a, There's a kind of it's a coincidental um, bumping into uh, 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 fine cuisine and fine wines in the 20s that carries over into the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. That also happens with A.J. Liebling. He comes over as a boy with his parents. Then he comes back when he attends the Sorbonne uh, in 1926-27. Then he comes back in 1939 to cover the opening of the war and the fall of Paris um, for the New Yorker.
3: His story is truly
4: a fun story. It's an I mean story. They're
3: all good, but his is his fun. He's, he's, he's sort of like the the, best, the you know. enfant terrible for a while there. Yeah, you know?
4: <laughs> I, I mean, he's he's like a rocket scientist um, uh, who just happens to really like to tuck in Hardy at the same time. So the brain is just it's just he's all over the place and brilliant. Um, but that chapter that I write about him telescopes backwards into time to before World War One then up to the beginning of World War II then through World War II and, it, and basically it takes place the day that he comes into Paris and um, sees the surrender of the German forces to the, to the Free French. Uh, so, so all of these people were not just hitting the ground in 1945 or 1948 or 1953 with a few books in their backpack. They were coming with life experiences either their own or those of the partner uh, to inform them. And then there's someone like Richard Olney who basically does uh, self-educate. He's, he, can, he comes to Paris with a brilliant mind, intending to be a painter, but uh, his best friends are all intellectuals, and he's eating in cafes and restaurants. restaurants. Um, mostly where what's on the plate and what's in the carafe is of consummate interest to him in a way that it's not to his intellectual friends. So he goes out and buys books. He buys a lot of books. They're old secondhand books. And he starts creating a little kitchen for himself and he starts cooking. And then 10 years later, he starts writing about French cuisine for the French.
3: Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Out of all these wonderfully interesting people and stories and research that you did and by the way a little um teaser out there for people the photographs in the book are the archival photographs and they're they're um really terrific i mean that i had to spend more time probably gazing at those and than, <laughs> than yes. reading the stories but is did you find yourself keep falling back towards someone else's story did you have a favorite
4: I think my excitement about French cuisine led me to be most excited about the person in the book who took French cuisine most seriously and was interested in in comprehending it and discussing it uh, um, in a way that was most true to the French um, um, reality. And that was Richard Olney. I also find his prose style extremely seductive. And the fact that he was a gay man making his own way in France with no money uh, just kind of blew my mind, because that's such a hard thing to do, you know? Um, So, uh, but it's not the fact that his life was hard that appealed to me, although I think there is a kind of romantic quality to his Garrett existence. It's the fact that he got it right, and he got it right for the French, and the French respected him for it. Yes, yes, they did. The French accepted him. He would never be anything but the American writing on French food and wine, but he wrote as well or better than any frenchman doing the same thing and they make exception for people who write well the french really have a respect for the written word so um the fact that he was able then to take all of that writing and knowledge in french and translate it for american readers um also amazes me it happens through uh the enthusiasm of sybil bedford uh, for his writing, it's, he's sort of pressured into it by people who know and love French cuisine, but also realize there's a gap in American knowledge. Um, Richard Olney's very good friend was Elizabeth David, also Sybil Bedford's friend, Elizabeth David, and she was doing the same thing, I think, in the best possible way for British readers. Mm-hmm. So Olney strikes me as a kind of American uh, Elizabeth David.
3: Yeah. And yet, very practical yeah. writing as well. I mean, great prose about food, but yet, the recipe very um, concise recipes that are easy to follow, that make sense.
4: Well, there's a kind of trajectory for his writing, because when he's writing for the French at first in his French menu cookbook, um, uh, and these, a lot of the French menu cookbook comes out of the writing that he was doing in French for Cuisine at Van de France. Those menus are complicated, and not all of them. Some are simple, some are more complicated, some are extremely complicated, but the preparations themselves are labor-intensive and require diligence. Um, when he moves to Provence and lives on a hillside. His life becomes very simple, and he gets excited about simple French food. Uh, And that desire to simplify and at the same time eat well and thoughtfully continues on into his 28-volume extravaganza called The Good Cook, where he was the general editor. And he had a lot of really brilliant people writing with him, including Jane Grigson, who I think is another amazing writer. Yeah, um,
3: one that is well-known within... The foodies, food circle, the food.
4: Well, she's British, people, sorry, so the but, Brits love her, but yeah. Americans maybe don't know.
3: Maybe about don't her. Yeah, don't pay us enough attention to some of those writers. Yeah. Um, you wrote something in in some of the talking points that you um, that you wanted to cover. Of course, I'm looking at all the <laughs> other people that we haven't talked about. So many people so many, in, in the know. book. Um, well, people just have to go out and buy the well, book hopefully, and, you know, <laughs> and read it. That's what we're hoping. Um, you said something about. Do you think? You talk well, you talk about that there that there is a dramatic arc or a storyline to this whole group biography. And group biographies are not an easy thing, I would imagine, to tackle. I mean you got you know you're kinda going in so many different directions. If there is a dramatic arc, can I mean I certainly know the ending and we kind of know the beginning, but what tell me about the height of that arc.
4: Well, if you think about it, when we're all starting out in the world, we don't know each other and we don't know that The other people that will eventually become very important in our field are working on the same thing or have the same set of um, enthusiasms. What happens in Paris is, and in this book is, I've created an omnibus narrative where all of the characters are in and around the Left Bank. We actually include maps showing all the different spots where people were frequenting, so and you can see the overlap. They often do bump into each other, but. Their early exchanges are not substantial, and in many cases they're not documented. We know that they did meet and chat, but we didn't know what they chatted about. Um, Those, um, the the specific drama of their relationship one to another uh, grows over time as they become aware of each other, as they're all making their significant contributions to American culture through publishing on Food and Wine. So and sometimes little beknownst to themselves i mean <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly Well, i think what 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 really happens is that um everybody grows up and you know some go back to the usa three of the people in my study go back to the usa three remain in france some die early like Toklas mm. and liebling others go on uh, some achieve enormous success on the american stage Um, you know, before the public, like Julia Child. And to some extent, M.F.K. Fisher. She became Mm -hmm. a kind of diva in her later years. Whereas someone like Richard Olney retires into himself. And if people want to learn from him, they come to his hillside in France and they have experiences there that they carry forward into history or the books themselves carry his knowledge and his erudition forward into the next generation. Um, And then you have someone like Richard Olney who achieves an enormous uh, financial uh, a major, staggering financial success, but then also leaves the wine business. And then no, lives. Alexis. Alexis, Alexis Lachine. Lachine.
3: Yeah. What did I say? Uh, Richard. Oh, no, no. Okay. Alexis Lachine. Yeah,
4: yeah. So, and he he basically um, he can live his life, his later life in semi-retirement, and he chooses to do that in Bordeaux, not New York, because although he doesn't necessarily like the French, he loves France. <laughs> he
3: was. He was. Uh, I, I, as I mentioned to you before the show, I had forgotten how much I liked him and liked his writing, liked yeah. his wine guides. And he was also kind of that dashing, leading yeah. man-looking kind of guy. Right, and he married Arlene married Dahl. Married Arlene Dahl, They right. were this incredibly <laughs> sort
4: of glamorous couple. Right. And uh, and he he saw the power of celebrity to drive product sales, I think, at an early moment. Uh, I think his marriage to Arlene Dahl was... Uh, he saw her as the sort of chatelaine of his chateau in, in mm. Bordeaux, and she was going to be a propeller of sales. I mean, who wouldn't buy a case of wine after meeting Arlene Dahl and having dinner with her? You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be part of Alexis Lachine's world? And so um, uh, there's a uh, there's a kind of business model in development there that I think has served later entrepreneurs well. Mm.
3: All right, so let's see. You do have a little sort of um, uh, uh, closing chapter, if you will, <laughs> and as with any great love affair, there is the end of the affair. Talk maybe. about that.
4: Well, I mean, the perfect example, I think, is Julia Child. She loved France and the French when she arrived in Paris. She wanted to live there. She wanted to have a, a maybe even a full-time life in France. But as she grew and developed as an educator and as a cookbook author, she began to see that her place was back in the USA um, presenting French food to the American public.
3: All right, now is this because she saw that this, she wanted to present to the American or because the French would never accept her as the voice of, of fine dining or what's appropriate or, or correct?
4: There's a lot of women in France who cook extremely well some of whom run cooking schools, some of whom run restaurants. And she was just another voice? Well, she's one of many women, and she's a foreigner. But she's a foreigner. And I think that every culture... uh, I think we see the same thing happening with Diony Lucas in the USA. Mm -hmm. She was the first person on American television presenting on French food, but she presented it with the French um, uh, way of doing things and a a very clipped British accent. And that sense that she was a perfectionist and sort of icy and cold and simply not American... Um, it just didn't go over well with the American public. That's right. So um, where was Julia Childs going to go uh, as, as far as food um, education was concerned in France? The people in France who care passionately about food already know about it. And there's a lot of people out there in France who take their vocations as food educators very seriously. Whereas in the United States, the, the field was wide open. She made the right move. Also, she's a classy lady. Yeah. I mean, she's a very elegant lady. Yeah. She's a distinctive upper-class woman. You can tell that from her accent. Uh, I remember as a kid sitting sort of transfixed in front of the TV because this woman looked like a grandma but she was also she had a salty sense of humor (laughs) she loved to have a good time maybe she'd had a drink or two you couldn't really tell when you were watching her because she seemed to be so much uh, caught up in the moment and so delighted to be talking to you the person at home that's a that's a genius, you yeah. know.
3: Having met her and spoken with her many times, I can also tell you she was extremely warm and extremely generous mm-hmm. and very encouraging to anyone yeah. who was embarking on the food world. Was, yeah, and was that's quite what happens an amazing in, her, in
4: her career trajectory, basically, you see, she says early in her career, uh, she dedicates uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking to La Belle France, mm-hmm. but by the time she publishes in Julia Child's Kitchen, She's uh, including chowder recipes, uh, meatloaf recipes, pasta recipes. Uh, she's cooking in a more American way. And I think that book, which is uh, beloved by many people who take Julia very seriously, is probably the most um, uh, important of her cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, is also, it's, it's a transitional uh, cookbook moving away from French cuisine to American cuisine. It's true. And her later advocacy is very much on behalf of American cooking, American chefs, American restaurateurs, and American producers of artisanal products in the French style, perhaps, but not always.
3: OK, now we are at the end of our time frame, but I just want you to give just a little hint of what caused the end of the affair in particular. What, if we can
4: tie that up in two sentences. Well, there's an economic thing that happens and a political thing that a happens. Political thing. Yeah. You know, France has always been leftist and has a very strong communist presence that tourists don't necessarily see. But in May of 1968, there's a student uprising in Paris that turns into a major uh, labor dispute that basically shuts down the entire French economy and makes American capitalists um, extremely unpopular mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. i heard from people who were there in 68 that Americans couldn't get served in restaurants and had to, in some cases, pretend they were Canadian. We weren't so- exactly
3: weren't exactly the favored <laughs> people, I will tell you that. Part. Yeah.
4: But then also America goes off the gold standard. The price of traveling overseas yeah. goes higher. There's an oil crisis that makes all kinds of um, uh, activities much more expensive. And nobody, um, the whole economic scene changes. And, and Paris itself becomes more of a package tour destination and less of a luxury destination. Yeah. It was fun while it lasted. It <laughs> as, was.
3: Was, as was this program. So it was a today. lot of yes. fun. Yeah. And me. again, it's Justin Spring and his book is The Gourmand's Way, Six Americans in Paris, and the Birth of a New Gastronomy. Excellent reading. Loved it. Thank you so much, Justin. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
0: A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.